gun rights group files a brief in the Texas abortion case, and an interview with Hollywood armorer Steve Wolf. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can go over and buy yourself a membership today if you want to get this podcast a day early and you want to get exclusive access to dozens of posts on the website, stories and analysis pieces from people like me and our contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, who is here today with me. Hi, Jake. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Steve? I'm doing okay. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. Actually, I think you are too. Yeah. Uh, cold season is upon us. Um, Tis I, the season. We both took COVID tests and they're negative. So all the all the mitigation does not work against the cold, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we haven't gotten COVID, but we've, got, we've both got the cold, even though you're in Colorado and I'm here in Virginia. So uh, it's just that time of the year, unfortunately, <laughs> for, for our voices. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, or maybe, maybe fortunately for our voices, I think uh, maybe you get a little bit uh, throatier and deeper sound. Yeah. That might be beneficial for the podcast. Good mic voice. Yeah. You should, uh, maybe you should get colds all the time. Uh, and, and maybe that will make our podcast ratings go up. By the way, people, you should be uh, reviewing and rating this show if you want to help us grow. Uh, so that that's something that you can personally do to help this channel, uh, this podcast, uh, do better and reach more people. If, if you're so inclined, if you enjoy what we're doing here. Let us know. Give us a review. Leave a comment on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe on your app for your favorite podcasting app. Um, all that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> let's uh, jump into the news of the week. Uh, first up, we have a piece from you, Jake, uh, that describes something that I actually had uh, kind of predicted would happen uh, back when the Texas abortion law was passed, uh, you know, a few months, was a few months back now, I guess, um, yep. where the tax, the thing that's interesting about that law is the, not necessarily the, the actual, you know, politics of abortion, uh, you know, whatever you come down on that, uh, it's the enforcement mechanism that they used, uh, was very, is a novel idea, uh, very creative. I guess is one way of, of putting it right. Um, which is to use essentially civil cases to enforce that uh, a ban on uh, most abortions. Uh, That's right. Basically, make the uh, practitioners, the abortionists, uh, liable civilly for performing abortions uh, in, in most circumstances, uh, and so that is actually enforced not by the government. Uh, you know, you, you don't get charged in criminal court for performing an abortion, you would get charged in a civil court by a private actor. So just a regular That's person. Right. Uh, and that was the sort of unique thing about this law that made it very difficult to stop uh, in the pre-enforcement, um, uh, you know, time that, you know, after it passed, but before it was actually <clears throat> put into effect, Courts affect, you know, they basically couldn't block it because of this enforcement, right. because it's the, the way that they went about doing this. And so at this time, I wrote essentially that this was likely to be used uh, by gun control activists as well in other parts of the country, uh, trying to 
go after gun rights, uh, maybe banning the sale of guns in the same manner, uh, you know, making people civilly liable for selling guns or certain kinds of guns or, you know, whatever it might be. But that that core tactic, I, I think, could easily be uh, exported to those issues by people who are equally dedicated to uh, pursuing the, you know, outlawing of firearms ownership or at least some firearms ownership, uh, uh, you know, in the same way that Texas legislatures are, or legislators are, are committed to pursuing outlawing abortion in a lot of circumstances. So now uh, the latest is that uh, this, this case is against the abortion law in Texas has made it to the Supreme Court now. Um, initially, they rejected intervening because of this tactic, but now the case has made it back up there. And there's an interesting brief that came along. Can you tell us a little bit about who filed it and why? Sure, yeah. So uh, the Firearms Policy Coalition, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a national gun rights group um, known for suing against gun control laws and things that they think are uh, against the Second Amendment. Well, in this case, they uh, filed an amicus brief for this case, the Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, um, basically uh, arguing that the court should take the case and grant review, which, you know, as you mentioned, they, they have since decided they're going to hear the case. Uh, actually, the first day of the, the session, November 1st, they're going to hear the case. Um, but yeah, they basically laid out the argument that, that you laid out in your analysis piece, basically saying, hey, if this law is allowed to stand, you know, what's to stop other parties from passing similar laws for guns or for any other constitutional right that's been previously recognized by the court? To just say, hey, you know, the government's not going to enforce it. We're going to kick this to private actors to sue in court. Uh, so we're not going to levy any civil uh, civil fines or threaten you with jail time. So you can't say the harm was done by a government actor. Right. And then thus the law is allowed to stand. So basically, like FBC made that argument in the case. And, and yeah, so we'll see how it plays out when the court hears the case. Yeah, and the idea there is that basically it's much harder for a court to enjoin uh, essentially every resident of Texas than it right. is to enjoin the attorney general of Texas or, you know, right. wh whoever might bring a, a government case against an abortion provider. And so in the same vein, <clears throat> if California or, or Hawaii or New York or one, you know, a, a state that has a tendency to pass very strict gun laws that, uh, have their constitutionality questioned on a regular basis, right? I mean, New York's, also going to be here, uh, the the subject of a Supreme Court challenge this term uh, over their gun carry laws. Uh, but a place like that could certainly try to push the boundaries in the same way on guns, where sure. they could, you know, outlaw the sale of all, um, you know, AR-15s in the state uh, via this uh, novel enforcement mechanism where, you know, they empower civilians to go and sue gun dealers or gun manufacturers in civil court. Uh, that you, you've kind of seen that tactic tried to some degree already in, um, <clears throat> uh, in regards to uh, liability for criminal use of guns. Try, you know, right. the states have tried to... Uh, to sue gun manufacturers uh, for criminal use of guns by by third parties, often decades after the gun was initially sold, uh, and so you, instead of trying to do that through, you know, uh, a government agency, uh, the attorney general, right? I mean, 
New Jersey is currently pursuing this exact kind of uh, lawsuit in the uh, case against Smith and Wesson uh, over claims that it's uh, advertising was uh, violated New Jersey state law and therefore the federal law that protects gun makers from this sort of liability doesn't apply in this case. Um, but, you know, you, you could certainly see them instead, you know, if, the, if that case doesn't work out, if that argument doesn't work out. And I think it's uh, more likely than not that Smith and Wesson will end up winning that case. Uh, you could, you could see certainly uh, them turning to this sort of enforcement mechanism instead and just letting anyone in New Jersey sue Smith and Wesson uh, uh, in, a, in civil court for selling any kind of gun that they don't uh, approve of. And sure. Or any gun at all, really. I mean, you go that yeah, far. Which- which is more fitting for New Jersey. Right. I mean, you could, you could see that as someone attempting that and then having, and then having the same sort of pre-enforcement uh, uh, blocks that you see with a lot of other kinds of, of laws not being able to be put in place here by a court because of this tactic. Because you can't, like a court can't enjoin all of the residents of New Jersey or all of the residents of Texas or California uh, against suits. It can only really do it on a, uh, as cases come up, right? That's sort of the main issue with trying to uh, go about um, blocking these types of laws pending judicial review. You have to have standing in order to initiate a, a case like that. And it's much harder to do when, uh, before you have sort of a test case come up uh, before there's because it's just more difficult for uh, a court to issue that broad of a uh, preliminary injunction against enforcement of a law like this. So anyway, that, that's that's the sort of dilemma here. Um, and obviously, if you're staunchly pro-life, you support what Texas is trying to accomplish. You know, you you can make an argument for using these sorts of uh, novel and and uh, extreme, maybe I don't know tactics uh, legally, you know, legal tactics. Um, but uh, everyone should be aware that it's not going to stop at that issue. Uh, and I guess that's what FPC's point is here: that they don't want to see this tactic used uh, again against the issue that they value, which is obviously gun rights. And so that's why they they want the court to kind of nip this in the bud uh, and and not open up the door to more of these kinds of laws on a variety of different other issues. That's exactly right. Yep. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But um, it's certainly interesting development to watch. uh, And that Supreme Court case, I think, is going to have repercussions well beyond just the abortion debate. Uh, Oh, yeah. The other thing that we're following this week is uh, failed ATF nominee, uh, David Chipman, uh, which uh, he was on CBS Evening News, right? Um, just uh, on Wednesday, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. Sat down with Nora O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. And he um, he made a number of claims uh, on there that were that are pretty hyperbolic, I guess, would be yeah, one way of, to say the least of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I mean, first off, 
you know, I guess one of the first things that I would want to say about this is like Nora O'Donnell, just like the New York Times, who was the first one to interview Chipman after uh, his his nomination failed, did not ask him a single question about the allegations that he one made uh, racist racist comments while working in the Detroit office where he is accused of saying that um, uh, too many black people had passed the uh, promotion assessment and that they must have cheated in order to do so. Um, and then obviously we broke the story that, well, we broke the story that there were, uh, so th there was a complaint filed against him over those comments, uh, allegedly. Uh, and we were able to corroborate that that story is one that ATF agents had certainly been told at the time uh, happened. So uh, that, you know, that occurred in July. And then in August, we had um, a black ATF, former ATF agent, uh, come forward and tell us that Chipman had actually specifically accused him of cheating on a promotion assessment uh, because Chipman believed that his answers were too uh, good on the particular segment that he was sitting in on. So obviously these are pretty um, serious revelations uh, and pretty serious accusations that got a lot of attention in his nomination fight when they came out. Uh, in fact, they prompted the entire Republican caucus of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee to call for a second hearing. They prompted the uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell uh, to call for him to be pulled. Um, and, and then eventually he was pulled by President Biden uh, a few weeks later <clears throat> after failing to get support from a number of key Democratic holdouts. Now, I mean, the entire Republican caucus publicly said they would not vote for him. But then you also had uh, four big holdouts on the Democratic side as well, who never publicly supported him, uh, never publicly declared their support for him in, uh, what was it? Who, who were the four? It was, um, it's a mansion, yeah, mansion, uh, cinema, Angus King, King and, uh, Tester. Tester. Yeah. So they were the real roadblocks. You only need 50 votes in order to get uh, a nominee confirmed, uh, in this, uh, to a position like that. So, um, obviously Republican support was unanimous, but they didn't actually need, uh, any Republicans to get him through and confirm him. That's right. But, uh, O'Donnell doesn't mention any of this in her interview with him. She doesn't question him once about any of these allegations. He has responded sure. to them, uh, in a USA Today interview that happened uh, a few weeks ago as well with, uh, with the trace where they did directly ask him about this. And he claimed that, well, one, he confirmed that it was a black agent that he accused of cheating. And he denied that that had anything to do with, you know, racial animus. He, he said that obviously that his claim is that that had no part. Now the agent himself believes that it, it did play a role. Um, sure. That it played the, the a direct role and the main role in uh, what happened to him. And the agent said he was exonerated of what Shipman accused him of. But 
that at the same time, it took two years to go through that investigation and effectively sidelined him during that time. And uh, he lost his desire to pursue further promotion in the, in the agency after that. So it did have a serious effect on this agent's career. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a fairly significant story. And it's remarkable to me, personally, that you could have someone like that who's based those allegations on a network news show and not even ask him once about them. Instead, she focused sure. on his opinion on basically uh, rising murder rates in the United States and his opinion on his own confirmation failing is a little bit sure. odd, to be honest. It is odd. And the fact that she doesn't bring it up, and like you said, the New York Times didn't either, it allows him to make some of those hyperbolic claims that you were talking about where he says, oh, I'm for gun safety. And the fact that they were against me means they're against gun safety. Well, actually, he, it like, was worse than that. He said... I'm, uh, you know, he spent his whole career at the ATF and then 10 years afterwards where he was working directly for gun control organizations, which he still does. He works for Giffords uh, as a senior policy analyst today. But uh, he was saying that, that his whole career was dedicated to stopping gun violence and that the only reason to oppose him would be if you don't support stopping gun Stop, violence. Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a pretty... Yeah rash thing to say uh, about sure. your opponents, but that was his claim as to why he didn't succeed in his nomination. But I just think it's a bit odd to have him on to, to opine about like, uh, you know, guns in America. He's, he's, he, he failed, like his nomination didn't go through. It's kind of weird to have him on and kind of, they kind of treated him like he was the director of the ATF. Right. Like, not that Nora O'Donnell never challenges him on anything because she does uh, in in what's available uh, online. But at the same time, she's like asking him what the purpose of the ATF is and what should be done at the ATF. It's kind of treating him like he is yeah. the ATF uh, director, even though he's obviously not. And just, the other thing is that, you know, in addition to the reporting on the racism allegations, we also had uh, direct quotes from for current and former ATF uh, agents who were concerned about his nomination. Now, Chipman paints this uh, opposition to him as purely being a political uh, and purely being the result of the gun industry um, when really there, the, there were also the same concerns inside the ATF. People said that he, because he's so antagonistic towards the gun industry, which he would be set up to regulate, that could harm the agency's ability to pursue criminal investigations because oftentimes gun dealers are the ones who help to provide tips for those investigations. That, that the kind of cooperation between the industry and the agency, that kind of a cooperation is key to how they actually perform their jobs and that he, sure. he would risk that. So th this was a common uh, theme that you heard from multiple agents. I think there were, we spoke directly to four agents who all had the same concern. And then another seven agents, former agents came out and wrote a public letter stating the same concerns yep. that was submitted to the judiciary committee as well. Nora Donald did not 
ask him about those concerns at all. Uh, and I just find that odd as well. Like she's set up in this interview, like he represents the ATF, even though he was not confirmed to be director and every public statement from a former ATF official during his confirmation here, you know, his confirmation period was negative towards him, was opposed to his nomination. So like, I don't know how you could make it the case that he speaks for the ATF in any way. He hasn't worked there in over a decade. <clears throat> and even people who worked directly with him said that they were concerned about him becoming director. So it's right. just an uh, odd, sloppy interview, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And obviously he goes on to make a number of other very controversial statements that sort of give you insight into why he was a controversial nominee even before the allegations of racism uh, came out, right? The, right. He said he says the gun industry profits off death and violence and, yeah, he's, and he's, exactly the kind of things that they were concerned with right. he, going forward. He says that they intentionally sell guns to criminals and terrorists uh, right. profit off of that. And, and that's why there's opposition to what he wants to do. That was his explanation for it. Uh, and he also claimed that it's easier to buy a gun in most oh, of the country than it is to buy a beer, which is just, and he claimed this without any evidence or explanation, right? How he could possibly say that. Cause it's not That's remotely right. true. Even in areas like usually, you know, this is a common talking point that you hear, obviously uh, in gun control circles, the president, president Obama made this a number of times. I think even Biden has done this too. He has. Yeah. But the claim is, you know, they're usually trying to say like in bad neighborhoods, you can go and buy a gun off the street easily. And that may be true, but uh, I mean, uh, generally, but that would be illegal for one. Sure. Most, in most of the circumstances that they're talking about here, like if you're buying a gun from a street dealer <clears throat> who's not doing a background check, it's probably illegal. Yes, you can buy a, a gun through a private sale that's legal without a background check in most states. Okay, fair enough. But like buy, you don't need a background check to buy a beer either. I was going to say, uh, never had to fill out a 4473 yeah, at the bar. And if you're talking about illegal sales, like I'm pretty sure you could get a beer. <laughs> that's like one of the classic things is to have somebody, an adult go and buy you a beer if you're underage. Right. Uh, like that's not, so it's just like they make these bizarre comparisons. I mean, uh, you know, they'll talk about a book. I think President Obama famously said uh, it was easier to get a gun than a book in some parts of the country. It's like, no, it's not. This is just it's actually not I'm just lying. Yeah. Uh, right. Same thing here. Like, no, it is not easier to buy a gun than it is to buy a beer. Whatever your made up circumstances are going to be. It's just not true in any way. Like, how hard do you think it is to get a beer in, in the United States? It's just ridiculous. Um, so I don't know. Um, it just shows the uh, deficiency in, in covering firearms issues in the mainstream media, which is, you know, exactly why you guys should stay tuned to the reload and come <laughs> for that kind of insight. Yes. Yes. Good sell. That's good. You're learning. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just like, come on, man. And, uh, you know, she challenges them on some of his more hyperbolic statements. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> when he talks about how, opposition to him is all because gun dealers want to sell guns to criminals and, and, and terrorists, you know, he, she, she, she asks, suppresses him and is like, you, you really think that lawful gun owners 
don't want to stop, uh, you know, gun traffickers. And he says, not enough of them. So, not so enough, yeah, like yeah, he's attacking directly lawful gun owners, saying that they don't care uh, about gun crime, which is remarkable. Uh, I mean, he's and then he's like explicitly attacking uh, Angus King and the other Democrats who didn't vote for him uh, because he claims that they were concerned he wouldn't be um, friendly enough towards the gun industry it was sort of the way that he put it, like implying that they're all beholden to the gun industry. Um, and that again comes, that's where Nora O'Donnell should have mentioned. It's not just Angus King or, you know, Republican senators or, or Tester or Manchin or cinema who had these concerns about him and his relationship with the gun industry. Other ATF agents had these concerns, like, like we noted. So it's just wasn't a well-prepared interview. Uh, it didn't cover really serious allegations of wrongdoing against him. And I just don't, uh, to me, I can't imagine that happening with a Trump nominee or a, Biden, a Bush nominee uh, right. accused of the same things. It's just, it's not realistic that they would get a relatively softball interview on the nightly news or the evening news in this case uh, on CBS. Right. So I just think it's disappointing. Um, it's not the worst interview I've ever seen, but it's certainly not up to the standards of what professional journalism should be, what, what you should strive to do when you have like there, I can't interview Jim and they will not let me interview him. Uh, I, I would love to have him on this very podcast, uncut, uh, unedited, let him say whatever he wants, but and let me ask him, questions. I'd love to do that, but that's not going to happen because they won't make him available. And so people who do get interviews with him ought to take their responsibility seriously to the public to inform them and to get answers about what's happening. I mean, USA Today and the Trace, to their credit, asked him about this stuff. Uh, yeah, they, they only put in two sentences from him on it, but at least they asked him. At least they um, asked, yeah. I think more could be said more, you know, there could be a deeper inquiry than, than just asking him and printing that he said he, the race wasn't involved. I mean, there's a lot of questions you could ask in there about the situation, but, but uh, you know, a lot of these places don't even do it. And they're just having him do this media tour. It's like his fourth major outlet. Now I'm sure he'll probably be on more. It seems feels like a re rehabilitation tour. Um, or a spite tour at this point, it's like it's how hard he's going against <laughs> Biden administration and these Democrats in the Senate is kind of surprising, given that he's still, you know, uh, associated with a major gun control group. Uh, I wonder how long that goes on before they start getting pushback about it. Um, sure. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, anyway, uh, well, the other big news of the week, obviously, uh, has been the Alec Baldwin shooting. And so... I've actually been able to book the other sort of expert who's been doing uh, TV appearances to talk about this. Is I, I like I've done Entertainment Tonight and Cheddar and Fox and a number of other uh, uh, platforms talking about this case and what happened and how it could happen and what what should be done about it. But uh, Steve Wolf is a Hollywood armor who has also been doing a lot of the same uh, media interviews. That I have, and uh, I thought, you know, he'd be a good guy to have on and talk a little bit more in depth uh, about what went on there. 
And uh, so that's that's who we have up next here uh, on the podcast. So stay tuned. All right. I'm here with Steve Wolf to discuss the Alec Baldwin shooting, the latest developments in that and some of the actual techniques used on movie and TV sets for overseeing firearms, uh, because Steve has experience with that. So I wanted to bring on somebody who can actually speak to it uh, from experience. Uh, Steve, can you give us just a little bit of background about yourself uh, for the audience? Sure, Stephen. I've been doing uh, movie stunts and special effects since the late 80s, uh, working initially as a set medic, uh, seeing all the ways that people could get hurt. And then as I transitioned into stunt coordinating and special effects coordinating, you know, I never forgot people really do get hurt doing this stuff. So you have to work with a constant eye towards safety. Uh, but I've worked with uh, Tom Cruise, James Cameron, Robert De Niro, David Duchovny. You know, I've gotten a chance to work with, you know, really all the people that I really looked up to in the business and still do. And, you know, try to carry on the tradition of professionalism that I learned from them in their side of it and bring that to what I do on my side of it. And that's, yeah. you know, constant vigilance. Mm -hmm. And you've uh, you've obviously been one of the top um experts that a lot of media outlets have gone to other than, than myself. Actually, I feel like the two of us have done most of these, uh, you know, gun so. expert hits so far. Um, yeah, true. So it's kind of great to have you on here uh, so we can talk about it maybe a little bit more in depth than what we can do on, you know, a 10 minute hit on or five minute hit on Fox or, or right. entertainment tonight or whatever. Um, yeah. Cause I want to get a little more into how, how do these safety pro protocols really work on set uh, versus how they would at a range Right. Yep. Uh, where, you know, I have a little more experience as a firearms safety instructor on the range side of things. You have right. some more experience on the set side. Uh, yeah, but and, and then I've we can just talk about what went wrong. Several ranges. Right. And, you know, there's always someone there watching what's going on. Yep. This, the range and, safety. And, officer, and it's right. supposed to be even higher safety ratio on a movie set mm. where you're supposed to have like one armor watching one guy with the gun. Yep. How did this break down? Where was the armor? Yeah, that, I think that's a good question. Right. How did. How did this break down? I think for me, um, the the number one thing, right? I, I mean, for me, it's like there were multiple mistakes across multiple people that yes. led to something like this happening. It wasn't just one thing to get to right. this sort of catastrophic mistake where somebody's life is taken uh, on a movie set by uh, what should be a safe uh, use of firearms that's overseen on multiple levels. You got to have multiple mistakes. It's not just one thing that one that's person right. did. Yeah, you have this, this chain of broken links. Right. The thing is that the chain starts at the top with the producer, which was Alec Baldwin, and it ends at the bottom with the person who had the gun in their hands, which was Alec Baldwin. Right. So there's no there's no escaping blame there. But sure. you needn't worry that he won't get any. There's enough for everyone. Yeah, that that's my take on it, too. Like, obviously, he's the one yeah. who pulled the trigger. He's the one who... Uh, didn't check the gun himself to see if it was clear. He's the one who was pointing it in the direction of crew. Uh, now, again, all of those things can only happen in a scenario on set where other people are also making mistakes, like allowing a, a shot to take place where a gun is pointed at a crew member, right. loading the wrong ammunition into the gun, not checking right. the gun when you're handed it to give to Alec Baldwin, right, the, the right. assistant director, uh, and the, the the just general lack of uh, safety in allowing live ammunition on set in the first place. Right. Would anyone say that the movie was any worse if I used this gun or this gun? Right. Would, that, I mean, would that affect how many people came and paid to watch that movie or how many people streamed the movie? I don't think so, right? But 
This one is, is actually manufactured as a prop gun. Mm-hmm. And if you try to put live ammo into it, you know, you don't get very far because it won't accept it. The length of this cartridge is too great for the modified cylinder and you can't fit it in there. Right. So, so would they say, oh, we can't use that gun. It doesn't look real. What? Because this one looks more real. This, this one actually is a live one. And, you know, you can take live ammo. You can put it in there and then you can shoot and kill someone with it or right. even kill one person and injure another person. Right. So, you know, no, I would think in, in, in any case where a prop gun that is, or a, a, a modified gun can be used, it should be. But to say that, you know, real guns can't be used safely on set really isn't true either because they're used on set all the time, you know, hundreds of times a week. I'm sure people are filming with real guns and no one gets hurt because they have someone there who knows what they're doing and because they don't bring live ammo on the set. Yeah. So you have to make so many mistakes, right? You have to be using an unnecessarily risky gun. You have to be using live ammo on the set and you have to point the gun at somebody. And if you don't make any one of those mistakes, you don't have an accident. Yeah. You might yeah. scare people. You know, if you have live gun, live ammo and you, point it off camera and shoot it pretty irresponsible, but nobody dies. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why gun safety rules are designed to be redundant, right? Yeah. That's the whole idea. And simple, right? So what, you know, and then for Alec Baldwin to say, Oh, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm just an actor. You know, I mean, five-year-olds can learn these rules. And if part of, you know, if, if Robert De Niro can learn how to box so he could do raging bull, you know, and Tom Cruise can repel off of a building and, so, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, and he learns how to do that. You know, there's no reason that if you're playing a cowboy in a Western movie that you can't learn how to use the firearms properly. Just, I, I just don't buy it. I mean, when Alec Baldwin drives to the set, you know, he operates a motor vehicle, right? So what are the control inputs there? A steering wheel, a gear shift, a turn signal, a wiper indicator, you know, an air conditioner thing, right? 20 different controls that he learned to use to drive his car. But but he can't learn to use the single control on a gun, the trigger. It's the only piece that you have to give input to, to shoot. So there's really no reason that anyone can't have the amount of expertise in firearm safety to be able to look at a gun and know, you know, is is there live ammo in there? Is it loaded? Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's my take on it as well in terms of uh, Alec Baldwin's personal level of negligence in this incident. Like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, movie sets seem to be a little bit different, right. Than the range because you're, uh, because they're supposed to be somebody responsible professionally for everything that happens with the firearm on set, the armor. Right? Uh, right. And you're supposed to have these several different layers of safety involved with how shots are set up. Uh, you know, and an actor is told to do something a certain way, uh, maybe the per- person telling them to do it that way is also responsible uh, when when it comes to pointing a gun at, at crew. Um, but at, at the end of the day, anyone who's handling a firearm on on set should know how to safely handle it. They should know how to check it. They should know wh- what it looks it's like when it's sets, clear or not. Anyone handling a firearm anywhere should know how to handle it safely. Right. But especially and, on set, you know, because it's an occupational environment. Mm-hmm. If I go down to my basement and I hire, you know, and I handle my guns uh, unsafely, you know, so I blow a hole in my water heater or something. Not not at the end of the world. Stupid, you know, but not fatal. But if I'm, I'm in a professional working environment, 
you know, then the maximum level of safety is what should be followed, not the minimum level of complacency. Yeah, absolutely. And so the latest reporting that we've seen and, and what we've seen in the uh, the warrant applications for search warrants involved with this case. Uh, it sounds like what happened was there, one, they were using live ammunition on the set. I mean, obviously live ammunition was mixed in, which again, we, we've established is probably the top mistake in all of this, that, that live ammunition not, was not, ever not, not mistake. M- mistake is when you're calculating the tip at the restaurant, you forget to carry the one. Okay. This is an act of, of, of overt stupidity. Yes. Yes, certainly. But that so it sounds it sounds as though uh, the scene was set up to be using dummy ammunition. Right. So there's uh-huh. there's three, I guess, three main types of ammunition. Right. In this circumstance right. here, you got live ammunition, which is a fully live round that has the shell casing, the primer, the gunpowder and the bullet, the projectile all right. all in one. And that's that's your when you go to the range and you shoot ammunition, that that's live ammunition that you're shooting. Right. Then you have blanks, which you have an example of. Uh, live end blanks uh, over there on your side of things. But blanks are basically uh, live ammunition with the bullet removed. There's no projectile. Three out of four parts, primer, powder, and casing, but no bullet. Right, and that's that's used to simulate what gunfire looks like visibly on camera, right? Right. Because there are – now, there are other ways that you can do that with airsoft guns and CGI. uh, And maybe that's appropriate in in certain circumstances. Maybe it doesn't look as good on camera – you know, or it's more expensive, and that's why you still have a lot of people using. Uh, it doesn't look like anything on camera because you don't see it on camera. Right. It, it uh, but maybe the CGI is not doesn't really yeah. match up to what uh, yeah. a blank can give you. It matches yeah. up close enough that you know, if we can suspend disbelief for all the other things that are happening in a movie, we could do the same thing for the, you know, for the muzzle blast. Sure, but uh, the, the third type is is uh, a dummy round. Right. And, and so right. A dummy round right here. Yeah. That's okay. where the uh, you have a shell casing and you have a bullet, the projectile, but you don't have any gunpowder in there. So it, right. it does. It can't fire. That's the idea. Right. And you use that because if you're doing a shot, especially with a revolver, uh, like the one that you have there, the two that you have. Right. There, if you were to point a camera down the barrel of that revolver and you didn't have a dummy round and if you had blanks in there, it would look weird. It would look different. Right. You're, you're looking to see a bunch of these there. You're looking to see bullets down there. Right. You're not, not blank air. And that's why they use those. Right. For the visual effect. Now, it sounds like from what we've uh, what's been reported, what the police have said, that the gun was loaded with dummy rounds and a live round. And that's where you get to the point where it's it's harder to tell those two apart than it is a blank and a live round. Uh, except that there there should be visible indicators of a dummy round, like the removal of the primer or or a dimpled primer. Yeah, I, I, it should be I easy like to tell if you know primer. what you're looking for. Right. So I, I, I often use a spent primer, you know, and it looks different. Right. And now, so when you're a spent primer, you know, could have been the result of a misfire that on a second tap would then go off. True. So it's better to have no primer. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I guess that's that gets into one point that I wanted to discuss a little bit with you uh, about, uh, I guess, standards on movie sets when it comes yeah. to armors and things like dummy rounds. Cause uh, I know with the, like the Brandon Lee shooting, uh, you know, back in the the nineties, yeah. one of the explanations for how that happened was that the armor on set made their own custom dummy rounds. Is that how it usually they, they works? Is in, there, and then like, when they how does that work? Out, 
the bullet stayed there. And then they loaded a blank behind it, and then the blank fired the bullet. Right. And so you could you could see how that could happen. But I'm wondering, like, dummy rounds, do you usually mm-hmm. buy those does, is, or do you make them yourself? Because it sounds like yeah, people kind of make, make them, them yourself. Yeah. You do knock this. the primer out. I mean, you, you start with live ammo, you shoot it off, then you knock out the primer, and then you seat a bullet in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put BBs in it so that when you shake it, you know, those are the dummy rounds. Okay. So you can have a, an audio... Uh, like an audible yeah, difference audible too. confirmation you shake it you hear the bb's bouncing around you know there's no gunpowder in there and there's no primer right and i guess but i guess that leads me to to like wonder about the standards for this kind of thing uh in that like if everybody's making their own dummy rounds it, you know it's just like reloads right where you don't right. necessarily know if it's quality reloads that you're getting right. and right. in this case maybe the dummy rounds weren't marked very well and so it wasn't that easy to tell the difference because you got a new armorer, 24 years old, only her second movie from what's been reported. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe that also contributed to what happened here. Yeah, well, if you can't tell the difference between the dummy rounds and the live rounds, maybe you should assume that they're live rounds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this goes back to the idea of like so many things had to have been done wrong for this to happen. Yeah. That it's it's really kind of astounding. Yeah. Comedy of tragedies without the comedy. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so uh, I think one one thing I wanted to, to get at here is uh, some some things that I've I've seen in terms of people, um, you know, discussing how actors should really interact with with firearms. So there's, there's a video uh, of, of another armorer who does, uh, you know, some some Western style uh, TVs and movie that he's had experience, you know, working with with firearms on and um he was he was talking about how it, it's similar to stunt work right and you've, you've also done stunt work done a lot of stunt work yeah. right and so he was comparing this idea of having the actor personally check the chamber of a revolver for the rounds and having them you know manipulate the rounds take them out put them back in make sure that they're actually what they're supposed to be that that can actually that could cause problems too. It'd be similar in this person's analogy to uh, an actor checking their own stunt rigging and potentially screwing it up. What do you, what do you think about that argument in this case? I think all all of this is physics and physics can be broken down, down in pretty simple terms. If the stunt rigging means that the buckles are supposed to be set thusly, then you tell the actor, I'm setting your buckle thusly, and you know that it's safe because the webbing is covering the red, you know, part of the carabiner that tells us that it's properly looped through. And then the actor could look, and then they could know that they're safe, and they would feel comfortable. Right. Uh, and there's no reason not to share that knowledge. You're not worried that the actors, once they have that knowledge, they're going to steal your job or something. You know, you're just explaining what you're doing. You're showing them that, that you know what you're doing. And you're letting them share in the safety process so that, let's say you put the harness on wrong. If you've taught the actor what it's supposed to look like, the actor could then look down and say, hey, uh, Charlie, didn't you tell me that the red was supposed to be covered on here? Because it doesn't look like it to me. You're the expert. You come look. But I'm just, you know, it just doesn't doesn't look like what you taught me was supposed to happen. Yeah. The more you share that knowledge, right, the more people can participate in the safety process. And this is what I thought about that. That was kind of mirrors my thoughts on the, uh, this particular critique. Like I understand, you know, this person was saying, all right, well, we're only loading in rounds in, in the 
certain way. So we might need a, a one blank and then four dummy rounds in order for this particular shot because we only want the we only want him to take as many shots. Like this is a very controlled situation. It's supposed That's to. That's right. And you so we're only using rounds, this kind of, right? and we don't want to mix. We don't have the, we don't want to have the actor mix them around or whatever. Right. And it seemed to me like, all right, that that makes sense. But then right. why not have the? Why isn't the armor yeah. there to? So we load everything up it. in the right order, you know, and then based on that order, you know, this one here should be in this. This round should be in this position, right? So we put that in there. We make a little mark on the back of that. That way, if the actor handles it, if they want to look at it, you know, they want to check it themselves. Then we make sure that the right one ended up back in the right spot before we go. Hmm. You know? Yeah, so it doesn't seem like that big of a hurdle. Yeah, no, there, there's no big hurdles in gun safety, which is which is really why, even though when these accidents happen, they are a tragedy. They don't happen all that often relative to the amount of, you know, gun usage that happens on on sets. Right. Yeah. Right. Because there's uh, I mean, there's I like mean, dozens of, of movies and films, you know, TV shot every day in this country that that utilizes firearms yeah. in one way or the, another. The vast majority are done completely safely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm only aware personally uh, from what I've you know read since uh, this this news broke of uh, three fatal accidents uh, over the last what 40 years. There was the. Uh, John Hexham, yeah, Brandon Lee. In 84, Brandon Lee. And then um, this is the third one, right? And, and this is the third, right. There have uh, been now others, there's been others some, uh, in other parts of the country. He just had his ear shot off with a blank. Uh, there's a gentleman in Kansas City that had his face shot with a live shotgun during a, a Western reenactment you know, mm. earlier this year because they, they used a live shotgun, live shotgun shells instead of blanks so these things happen you know occasionally but for the amount of filming that's done that uses firearms you know it's a rarity and it's a rarity because you have to achieve such a high level of stupidity and carelessness that most people just can't get there yeah and i guess to that point uh i think we should discuss a little more about how they got to that point on this particular set or at least from what we can what we can glean from what's been reported thus far. And it sounds a lot like it perhaps had to do with uh, budget constraints and rushing production. Uh, there you was know, this is a $6 million movie. Mm -hmm. So how much more would it have cost to hire someone with a little bit more experience and to make sure that they had prop guns instead of real guns? Right. Not and, much, you know, yeah, presumably it's that, that minor budgetary change. To the cost of a life lost, and it's, you know, pretty foolish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like this production, I mean, obviously they hired a, a, a green armorer. Uh, right. We know that much. Well, they hired, uh, now she had, uh, her father had worked in the industry, um, but this her, was only her Her father, Bell Reed, is a, a real mensch and knows his stuff and has been doing this forever and has a perfect safety record. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps he should have also been hired alongside he should, he been there. honestly i mean everyone has to start somewhere in the business right? sure you know we, we all have our first gig you know but you should have that first that the first time that you have all the responsibility should be after you've apprenticed under somebody for several years who's really taught you the ropes properly and you know you know that you know what they know that you know what you're doing when you take that first job yeah uh and then uh, well, I guess alongside that, so, you know, in your experience, 
from what I've heard reported, there, there's a possibility that maybe she was the only one on set res- who had the uh, responsibility for the guns. And maybe there's some suggestion that there should have been uh, she should have had a ste- you know, assistant or something like that involved. What does that look like normally? She, on- she, she, she should have maybe she should have had an assistant. More likely, she should have had a supervisor, you know, someone who'd been doing it a lot longer than she had. And she could have been the assistant. But someone there who's watching every step of what happens, making sure that she understands the rules and make sure that she's comfortable enforcing them. If you get a, you know, a newbie on set, you know, they're kind of timid and they're just so happy to have the job. And then you have some kind of a bully AD like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's get those guns out here. I got to get this shot. I got six more minutes of like, you know, what are you holding me up for? And it's like, hey, wait a minute, dude. Okay. Copernicus could have predicted 400 years ago what time sunset was going to be tonight. If you didn't account for that, that's your problem. I'm not going to rush the safety process here. I'm not going to endanger anyone. And if if you feel that way, maybe you're the one who shouldn't be working here. Yeah. But it takes a lot, you know, it takes some balls to to talk back to an AD like that when you're afraid that you're going to get fired and they're just going to bring in somebody else. Yeah, and you see that in, I mean, all over the place, right? In in yeah. in accidents, and when accidents happen, whether it's with guns or even something like airplane crashes, right? Uh, I'm a, I even, watch a even lot the of space uh, shuttle, right? How many people knew that there was something wrong with the O rings? You know, and nobody said anything, and then they send it up, and it blows up in their face, and people die. Right. right? And so I mean, I remember has is an obligation, you know, to speak up for safety. Yeah. If anyone doesn't think that something is safe. You know, they have a right to raise their hand and, you know, get that concern voiced and addressed. Yeah, I remember one one plane crash uh, that uh, where the like uh, the pilot and the assistant pilot, you know, there's two there's two pilots, but one was more experienced than the other. And the less experienced one noticed something was wrong, but didn't assertively speak up because the the more experienced pilot said that there it wasn't a problem and then the plane ended up crashing and everyone died yeah. uh but you like, know that, that sort of dynamic is a problem yeah no intimidation through seniority you know is no way to promote safety uh now what about this uh this report that the assistant director is the one who gave baldwin the gun and told him it was cold is it unusual that that the assistant director would be the one uh, handing the gun to an actor and not the, the, the armorer themselves. How does that? It, it is unusual. Work? Only, you know, the more people you put between the gun and the actor, the, the less responsibility the, and the more fragmented chain of safety you get. Only the armorer should have loaded that gun. And Alex should have been told, if anyone hands you the gun, that's not the armor. Don't take it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tell actors that don't take the gun from anyone but me because I have properly checked it. And I know what I'm doing. And not only do I know what I'm doing, but I've made sure that you know what you're doing, right? I know that you know not to take that gun and do anything with it until we've made sure of its condition. And if we're not sure if it's dummies or or live rounds in there, then we're just going to take a moment. We're going to unload the six cylinders. It's going to be done in six seconds. We're going to check those rounds. We're going to shake them. We're going to reload. Oh, boy, we cost the production company 30 seconds you know, but we saved someone's life. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I just feel like that's what it boils down to here. It's, yeah. it's not that hard to, no. to properly carry out gun safety rules uh, on set or at the range. It doesn't take long. Anyone can be trained to do it. There's right. no, just, just like no good excuse for any of this stuff happening. And there's so many people involved along the line that had to 
forget what they were supposed to do or not really forget, but they they are new. And and it's just like, David Halls never should have picked up that gun. He never should have handed it to Alec Baldwin. He certainly shouldn't have yelled cold gun unless he's willing to take the murder rap himself. Yeah. And Baldwin shouldn't have trusted him on that point, frankly. No, No, Uh, I mean, he, uh, he is reported to have had previous onset safety violations with guns. And honestly, you know, a good AD often doesn't even need to be there. They could be setting up the next shot so the production can move along quickly, right? They're they're letting everyone know, like, this is what we're doing next, this is what we're doing next, so that the crew can be ready. Uh, you know, and they're not supposed to take a, a minutia, hands-on role unless they're trying to expedite things beyond the pace at which they could be done safely. Yeah, and I, and I also want to know who set up this shot in a way that a gun was pointed at somebody. Uh, right. How did that happen? You can have a gun pointed at a camera, right? I mean, uh, in your experience, right? They, you can have a gun pointed at a camera. Absolutely. I mean, even right, you know, what you're doing right now, there's right no one now, behind your camera. The camera right. If I press this gun, unless the internet is, you know, been matured to a point that I'm not aware of. Right. The, the only thing in danger is, you know, my camera. Exactly. But there's no one behind your camera when you're doing that. In this right. case, there were people, at least two people behind that camera when he pointed right. the gun at it or... However, it worked out like clearly they were in line of the where the gun was pointed. And it's just how could that ever be set up that way? Yeah. You know, guns that fire single bullets are extremely directional. They only endanger the person standing in line with the sights. So if you're if you're lining up a shot where you're doing a cross draw and the camera's pointed, you know, the gun is pointed behind you and you're sweeping across this whole 180 degree arc and you're ending up here with the possibility of slight over travel, maybe over here, you know, then you, you clear this entire side of the set. You put everyone over here, you lock the camera off, you hit record, you step off camera, safe to a, to the safe zone where the gun is never pointed. You get your shot, you come back and turn the camera off. Yeah. And, you know, and so I bet you that so many people knew on that set that that's the way you're supposed to do it. But everyone's rushing through following other people's suggestions who, who don't know as well as they do. And people are like, you know what? Why even raise my voice? No one's going to listen to me. Yeah. It sounds like it was a culture problem on that set. Uh, I mean, you had yeah. the, you had the walk off by the union uh, camera, camera people. Uh, right. I mean, I don't know if that's connected or not, but it sort of gives you this impression that they're complaining about being rushed. Uh, they're complaining about, safety conditions of having to work long hours and then drive long distance back to their hotels. It's obviously a very different kind of safety issue, but that sucks. And it, and it can contribute to fatigue, which can contribute to accidents, but it was not a proximal cause of the accident, right? right. Nobody right. got killed because the food was crappy or the drives were long or the hotel beds were too hard. Right. You know, they got killed because they pointed a gun at someone that had live ammo in it and pressed the trigger. Right. I just wonder if it if it gives some sort of uh, indication about how the production was going and the yes. sort of priorities yes. that they were that they it, were taking. It, it speaks to a legend. culture of disregard for the health and safety of the crew. Right. And that then that's how you end up ultimately with a that's horrible right. tragedy like this. Yeah. People like. get overworked. They get fatigued uh, and they, you know, they lose their safety edge. So you know, when, when I have to blow up a car in the middle of the night. You know, I look at the production clock and I say, OK, well, you know, you guys are starting at uh, at eight. You know, I normally go to bed at midnight. 
I feel like maybe I have a two hour window there. You know, I could blow up this car until two. But if you're not ready for that shot, I'm not going to do it any later because I'm not comfortable knowing that the further you move me away from my normal sleep pattern, the more likely I am to overlook something and, and cause an accident. Yeah. So here's your window. You know, you've got between midnight and two to get this shot. Otherwise, we're just going to have to do it another time. And if, if you don't like that answer, you go, go, go get somebody else. Right. And that's, and that's sort of the rub too, is like you get, when you're in that position and you're responsible for the safety, you have to stand up for yourself because if you don't, someone could get hurt. Yeah. You have to stand up for the crew. You have to say, you know, I, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave, but what you're proposing is not safe and I won't do it because I don't want to kill anyone. And you know, then I'm washed up in this business and someone is washed up from their life forever yep. because you didn't get your shot or you wanted to save 50 bucks on, not getting the right guns here. You didn't want to pay the FedEx fees from LA to get prop guns sent in, you know, whatever your problem is, that's your problem, yeah. but don't make your problem. My problem. Right. And, and I, I, think that's here, the... I was hired to make sure that the set is safe. Yeah. So don't interfere with my job. And that's the ultimate tragedy here is that someone lost their life. Somebody who's a, yep. a mother or wife, you know, uh, a rising star in the industry from what everyone said. It's a horror. It's a horrifying thing. And, it, you know, yeah. I think it's easy to get caught up in like, oh, Alec Baldwin's a big star. A lot of people don't like him. You know, oh, is he get, is he going to face criminal charges? I mean, maybe he will. Uh, I don't I don't know. We'll see what happens with that. But the more important thing here is not whether Alec Bob, you know, sort of ranking blame for who who did what wrong. There were so many people that deserve blame. Yeah. You know, obviously, Baldwin's the one who ultimately pulled the trigger and had a gun pointed at somebody and that ended in someone's life being taken. But what matters more to me when I look at it is the person's life who was taken in, in, in this way yeah. that was the result of such awful negligence on so many people's part. Yes, that, I'm, not, uh, I'm not afraid for either of us to throw around the term gross negligence. Yeah. Because the departure from the safety norms was was so huge mm. that, you know, yeah. negligence is, you know, is a, you made a little mistake. All right. You weren't paying attention. But to get all three of these things wrong and, and have it end up with someone being killed, you know, yeah. gross negligence, you know, wanton disregard for human life. Right. Just, and uh, so... I guess well, the last thing for you here, what what's your takeaway? What do you want to see changed? I know you've talked a little bit about uh, in the past on other uh, interviews about, you know, maybe removing real guns altogether. Some people have started a petition to that. And I'm interested in your, in yeah, your thought I hear on 27,000 people signed that petition. And that will make anyone safer who's standing behind those 27,000 pages. But otherwise, it's not going to do anything. You know, if people don't follow the rules. And it's not that we need new rules. It's we need to follow the simple rules that we already have. Mm -hmm. Now, given a choice, when there is the availability, you know, of using a prop gun rather than a real gun, use the prop gun, you know. And and if it costs you 200 bucks to have the, the barrel, you know, the cylinder modified, you know, spend the money. Uh, don't bring live ammo on set and don't point guns at people. When I think, you know, as a firearms instructor, I think, well, if you had a real gun and you loaded it with live ammo and you pointed it at someone and you pressed the trigger and a hole ended up in the person, that everything worked right, right? That that's actually what these guns are designed to do. They're designed to fire projectiles that make holes in people. So if that's what the equipment does in its unmodified format, you have to do everything different. You have to use a modified gun. You have to use modified ammo that we, that we call blanks. 
and you have to not point the guns at people. If you do those things, you know, nobody's going to get hurt. Yeah. I mean, I, I think largely the same way. I, like To me, I don't see the necessity of, of like banning all, all real guns, especially since um, this, this is such a rare event. I mean, it's a horrific event, but it, it should never be able to happen because people should be following the safety rules. That's what, that was the right. problem that's, here. That's right. That's right. It's, you know, if you have a, 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 one of the set drivers that drives people back and forth to the hotel, you know, and you kept them up for 24 hours because, you know, after, because, because they've got to spend five hours ferrying people to the set and five hours at the end of the day, ferrying people to the set and they're exhausted and they happen to run someone over on a movie set. You're not going to say we shouldn't allow live cars on set anymore. You know, we're going to say, we should ensure the conditions to make sure that everyone has enough sleep to yeah. make sure that the drivers are, you know, have licenses that to make sure that they've received sufficient training uh, to yeah. make sure that the conditions are optimized for them to perform well. But to blame it on a piece of equipment is really putting the responsibility in the wrong place. Absolutely. But I'm with you as far as, you know, everywhere that it makes sense, try to mitigate the risks. And one That's of the right. ways to mitigate risks is using blank firing guns instead of real guns. Using right. airsoft guns uh, and CGI in circumstances where you can. Using rubber guns in shots where it's far enough away that you can't tell the difference. Right. Using shooting techniques so that the gun's never pointed uh, at another right. person, but it looks like it is on camera. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do and should do. But, uh, but yeah, well, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, Steve, thanks so show. much for having me here. Yeah, giving giving us and, respect. And, and I just, think it's been really interesting. You know, if, if your viewers are interested, normally I I sell this for quite a lot of money, but I put my entire slide deck for my handgun safety class on my website. It's at stevewolf.info. It's also on my LinkedIn page, and you can download the whole you know 400 slide presentation, you know that walks people through. Yeah. Any cool. of this stuff, and you know any of your instructors in your audience, you're welcome to download that presentation. And, and use it because, you know, I break it down so simply that it's really hard to get it wrong after you've seen it that way. Yeah, super important to get that kind of training. And then also if people uh, are perhaps interested in having you consult for their movie or stunt or whatever, you know, their, your normal job, I th hopefully they can contact you through the website as well. Is that right? Through the website or just text me, you know. I, I made my phone number 512-OLD-WOLF because uh, I set my sights on one thing, get old. <laughs> if you get old, it means you've you beat the odds on everything that could have taken you out. Yep. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, maybe we'll have you on again in the future to talk a little I'd more about to, this, too. You, 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 it's a great service you have here and a really great, great podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. All right. That's all I've got for you guys this episode. Join me again next week for another one. And if you're in the mood, you go on over to the reload.com and Pick out a membership today. We've got monthly, we got yearly, we even have a lifetime, although I think I'm going to, that one's going to be pulled off soon uh, here in a little bit. But uh, go ahead and check those out. While they're available, you will get the podcast a day early. You will also get exclusive access to a dozen, dozens, dozens of exclusive pieces of content, including stories that you can't get anywhere else and analysis pieces you can't get anywhere else from the from me, from Jake, and from others. So head on over there. And if you're so inclined, please take a moment to rate the podcast. Let us know what you think. Let us know how you think we're doing. We try to 
incorporate any feedback we get uh, to try and improve things. I try not to say um as much because of one angry reviewer. Uh, it's not easy, though. I'll tell you that much. But go ahead. That helps us a lot to review, to rate this podcast, to get it out to more people. We will be back with you again next week. See you guys then. Just for fun, I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run, I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever my own.